From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to the season premiere of Gator Tales, the only official podcast of the Florida Gators. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After months of anticipation, the Billy Napier era officially begins this weekend in the Swamp, with one of the highest profile opening games in school history against top 10 and defending Pac-12 champion Utah. On today's show, we'll discuss the numerous storylines swirling around this game, this team, and this new coaching staff with our biggest panel ever. In addition to FloridaGators.com's senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, we'll welcome the new voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, to our roundtable. Then, super senior linebacker Amari Bernie joins us for a chat about being the first college graduate in his family and why he came back for one last ride. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. It is time for our first roundtable of the season on our premiere episode. This is season number seven of Gator Tales, if you can believe that. And we're happy to have our biggest roundtable ever. We have our returning champions, FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry. And a, a new entrant has come into the uh, into the battle here. Sean Kelly, the new voice of the Gators, is going to be part of our roundtables as well. Uh, Sean, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Um, this is the first time a lot of Gator fans have heard from you. So before we get rolling on the, before we really dig in here, um, just you know, talk about what it's like being in Gainesville and, and getting ready for your first game. Nothing quite as daunting as being a member of this distinguished panel. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, everyone has been super welcoming and uh, I've been able to uh, jump in with both feet. Fantastic. And we're happy you've jumped right into this podcast. And let's start with the question. I think that, that all Gator fans are are pondering at the moment, which is this, what are the expectations for not just year one, but for game one, for Billy Napier? You know, you hear a lot of things about buy-in. That's a big topic of discussion among players. The question ultimately becomes, what will that look like here on day one? Scott, why don't you get us rolling on that? Well, I think, um, you know, first thing that catches my mind, obviously, is just the matchup. You know, it's such an unusual matchup uh, historically here at Florida. Uh, Utah for Utah as well. I mean, they're labeling this out in the Salt Lake City as the the biggest season opener in Utah history. This is a team that's coming here, guys that has, you know, they're being mentioned as one of the uh, potential candidates to get to the college football playoffs. So you're gonna see a very good team. But for Gator fans, it's all about the Gators. We all know that, and it's all about Billy Napier, uh, a new uh, a new era, and. Uh, you know, everybody's anxious to see what it's going to look like. And I think everybody's really anxious to see, guys, what Anthony Richardson's going to look like. Because I think when you look at this Florida team, no secret here, I think this might be a team that, you know, lives or dies heavily with what Anthony Richardson is able to do. And 
uh, you know, Gator quarterbacks, they're in the spotlight from the first snap. There's no honeymoon period for those guys. And he gets thrown against Utah. So that's what catches my attention. We're going to find out something in game one where we can't always say that. I mean, every year when we have these conversations going in the season, you know, we address the unknowns. And, I mean, we do that whether or not the opponent is Florida, Atlantic, or Charleston Southern, or, or East Tennessee State, whoever the hell it may be. I mean, but this is an entirely different animal. Uh, I know we'll eventually get to talking about um, season openers in a historical perspective probably, but um, this is a team with that <laughs> – they beat the hell out of uh, Oregon twice last year, including, I think, 38-10 to 10 in the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, they won 10 games. They returned 14 starters. They have a, a couple Pac-12 player of the year candidates, uh, a, a quarterback who could you know, sneak into the Heisman race. Uh, the people on the West Coast could be saying somebody who's being overlooked in Cameron Rising. So as far as a litmus test, you know, you can't – there hasn't been one like this come roll into Gainesville – for a first game in a long, long time. And then, you know, add into the factor, it's a Billy Napier's first game, uh, add into the factor what Scott said, uh, uh, so much is on the plate of Anthony Richardson this season. Um, and, you know, no, nobody's made any bones about that, uh, especially when you start talking about the depth behind him. So uh, a lot of questions uh, will be answered that night. I, I think this is a team relative to what, Billy Napier's plan is that's going to get better over the course of the season. So um, they may be Gators that, that, you know, that don't like what they see that first night. I mean, that's entirely possible. I don't think he's the guy who's going to panic. I think, like I said, he has a plan to build and build and build. And uh, that's where this, where this team's headed. And the schedule isn't really conducive to getting better along the way, but I think this team will get better along the way. In some ways, the sense that I'm getting, just from being around the state a little bit and, and here in Gainesville too, is that there's this appetite for a full reboot to Florida football. And I think that they're eager, maybe anxious is the better word to see if Billy Napier and this new staff and, and everything else, it, you know, presents the opportunity to, to reboot and return Florida to the glory that most folks around here are familiar with. The problem with that is that most of the players are the same ones from the prior administration. So how can you truly reboot if, if the talent pool is very similar to what Gator fans have watched? Although there are some interesting transfers involved here. And Richardson, yes, we've seen him, but have we really seen him? Uh, the snap count is low. You know, he'll make his first home start this weekend. That also lends itself to, you know, the, the reboot, you know, need or wants. Um, so, to do that, though, against a team like Utah seems almost ridiculous. Uh, no Gator head coach has lost their debut since 1979. <laughs> um, even as some of these administrations have not fared as well as we all would have liked to have, they at least won their first game. <laughs> I, don't think any of them, I don't think any of them all had to deal with the seventh-ranked team of the country and the defending Pac-12 champion. So it for me, it's – this balance, hopefully, that Gator Nation will have patience, but yet the appetite for the reboot and the renewed energy around this place. I got, I got to say, Sean's uh, perspective is, is refreshing because he comes from a national perspective. He watched Florida football and followed Florida football like he did a lot of college teams and like he did the SEC from a distance. So 
he parachutes in and kind of gets the take from a, a national flavor of it all. But I, and I think he puts it in a, in a pretty unique kind of perspective as opposed to the three of us who have been and seen and heard every week for the, for the, for the last few years. So I think that's a pretty refreshing kind of look at things right there. Chris, that's, that's the only angle I can come from right yeah, now. Sure. And for me, I think it's, it's healthy um, in some ways and may help, you know, kind of maybe in some way be the voice of reason, if that's possible in the <laughs> SEC. Uh, it's not, it's not possible. It's not possible. No, <laughs> I'm, luck I'm, with. I'm aware <laughs> enough of that, but, yeah. Yeah. but at the same time, I do think there's something sneaky good about this football team. And I think that, you know, Napier's ability to be choosy as to where he was going to be next, this will go, I think, faster and more efficient than perhaps maybe another coaching change would have in the past. If you're going to be sneaky good, uh, you do have to have some sneaky good players, right? And we've talked about Anthony Richardson, I think, from the 500-foot view or the 5,000-foot view. That's the that's the guy that everyone's zeroing in on to say, okay, if Florida's going to be good, he has to be special. The question is, who's going to help him be special? For, for you guys, with what you've seen, what are some of the names, who are some of the guys you're going to be looking for that are going to need to be big contributors for Florida to have the kind of season that everybody wants for Billy Napier's debut? Well, I think one of those guys, unfortunately, we haven't gotten to see him a lot in the camp because he hurt his uh, ankles, Ricky Pearsall. I mean, that's that's the reason he came in, the receiver from Arizona State. Uh, they really like this guy's ability to, to kind of just – get in and out of cuts uh, real fast, a good route runner, uh, led Arizona State in receptions, uh, yards, and touchdowns last season. Uh, that was what their biggest skill player get in the offseason in the transfer portal. Uh, but, you know, you look around him, we've got some familiar names, and, you know, Naquan Wright's healthy and back at running back. I think the running backs, they're always going to have to play well and get some production from that unit to take the pressure off the quarterback. And, I think uh, with what you're hearing from uh, Billy Napier and his staff this uh, camp, you know, between Naquan Wright, Montreal Jordan Jr., I mean, Montreal Johnson, uh, who else we got? Uh, Lorenzo Lingard. And then you have uh, the true freshman, Trevor Etienne, which uh, he's, I think, ahead of the curve some. So they like that position. Uh, I think they're going to get some production from back there. The offensive line, I think, is the best that Florida's probably had in three or four years in terms of just experience, talent, and they've got a couple pieces of depth there. I really like uh, Osiris Torrance, who Napier brought with Louisiana, a huge pickup. I think he may be the most important addition on the roster, quite frankly. Uh, And then the receivers. I mean, let's face it, guys. They're going to have to have help there. I think besides Pearsall, who's proven at this level, and Justin Shorter, the other guys we've seen flashes of, but we haven't seen them being – the main guy or one of the main two or three guys. And there's always question marks until they go out there and catch the box. We've only seen flashes of Justin Short. This guy was one of the yeah. best receivers in the, in, in the country coming out and saw, when he signed with Penn State. So he, Anthony Rich is going to need help from those guys. Uh, he's going to need help on the edge. Guys are going to have to make plays for him because I, I think in a lot of ways what the offense is going to be is maybe simpler than than and maybe needs to be, uh, given what has gone on here the last couple of years with what what Dan Mullen has run and uh, <laughs> I don't know they get any simpler with what Rule Mustamp was running, but uh, that's that's not that's neither here or there. But but the but the to Scott's point to the the offensive line is probably the best unit, either offensive line or running back. I think is the most talented unit on that side. It's easy to 
name skill position guys, but I, I, I don't think you can emphasize how much, uh, how, how important that, that O-line is going to be as far as, uh, you know, being able to make things happen for Anthony Richardson and opening up holes for a running. I think this is going to be a running football team and you have a quarterback who's going to be encouraged to run when running opportunities there. You just hope that he has a way that he can, uh, that he can stay healthy and has a good sense to get down when it's time to get down because uh, they, they need him to do that. And Adam, I don't want to repeat, you know, what our other two panelists have discussed, but if, if we're going to let history be our guide a little bit here, the history of Billy Napier is his love of the tight end position, dating back to not only his days as a head coach in Louisiana, but his other stops as an assistant or offensive coordinator. So, I sit there and look at guys like Xanders and Zipper right now and wonder if can one of them be a playmaker? Can they be a mismatch problem at minimum for an opposing linebacker per se out of this offense that Chris just described? So that's one in there. And then I think in just having watched Florida again from that national distance last year and whatnot, the return of Ventral Miller is, is fantastically huge for Florida's defense. I, to have him fully healthy – I think it was very clear how much they missed him last year and to have him back uh, as the captain in the middle of that defense and with some veterans behind him uh, in Dean and Torrance, I, I think that they're going to have to, A, stay healthy, but also, B, um, embrace the new system and, uh, and find a way to keep a Florida offense that, that may grind it, as Chris described, um, in games and not let, you know, let games become a track meet in some you know, in some way. Yeah. And let's, let's talk more about that defense. Cause you noted some of the experience there. You've got Trey Dean, who I believe is in his ninth year, if I'm counting correctly. Um, Ventrell Miller is back. You've also, you've got Amari Bernie who's taken his COVID year. So you have a lot of experience there. And, and from, from what I've you know, speaking to Amari Bernie and hearing what some of the other defensive players have said, there's a real attacking mentality that's being implemented by Patrick Tony. Uh, what do we think this defense is going to look like and how much of a strength do you think it will be? And how much of a strength does it need to be for Florida to be successful with the formula they're building this year? Can I log in? My answer is I don't know. And that's just because <laughs> that's just because I think that none of us are ready to give a, a full evaluation of what's up front. Um, you know, we've talked about the linebackers. I think the secondary is in fairly good shape. Um, but yeah, there are names that I recognize and I think have played well, but then there's names that I think Florida fans will be saying again, remind me who Summerall is or the SAP guy. Is that the same family? You know, so until those questions are answered and we may get them real quick here in week one, um, I, I have to reserve my, uh, my opinion or my vote until I know more about up front. Yeah. I mean, I think Sean's kind of on the right path there. It's kind of how I feel, uh, I do believe when I just objectively look at this roster and this defense, I think that front defensive line, I mean, that's probably to me the, the biggest question mark on the team. I mean, Jervon Dexter and Brenton Cox Jr. are a couple of names that, you know, Gator fans are familiar with, but they're being asked to elevate their game and their production uh, this year. And, you know, we just don't know if, if they're the kind of players that are ready for that. You certainly hope they are. You know, Billy no uh, Napier hopes they are. Uh, one guy that kind of intrigues me over there is uh, Prince Leuven Nealon. I mean, he, we've heard about him a lot now since he's been here. And he's, he's had some, you know, he's had some moments, but he's a guy that, to me, he's he's the one guy on that defense. 
if they're going to be a really good front seven and he's he can contribute and make that jump that people have you know said he's got the potential to do i think it has to happen uh so but yeah it, it's just uh there's still so much unknown there uh and they're going to get again they're going to get tested right away utah is such a well-balanced offense run the ball well pass the ball well have two great tight ends i mean this defense it's uh there's no uh Patrick Tony, I mean, if they play well and they somehow, you know, beat Utah on Saturday and they play well defensively, Patrick Tony maybe asked for a raise right after the game. <laughs> Brenton Cox said he was going to break the sack record in the spring, he did. didn't he, guys? Yeah, yeah he, he did. did. So, so, may, so maybe Brenton Cox is a guy who, who probably should um, may, maybe expect a little more out of himself, just as the Gators ought to expect a little bit more out of him, just like Scott mentioned, Jervon Dexter. I want to – uh, I want to go back. You you mentioned Trey Dean. Uh, you said he's been here like seven years. I think nine um, was the number I used, but I'll take seven. Nine years. How, how, Scott, how many years has he been here? He's a senior, right? He's going into. He's a fifth year senior, but okay. Well, let's let's talk about Ventrell Miller being an actual sixth year senior who is playing for his fifth head coach. If you talk interims, so that's a guy who who uh, and 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 Sean brought him up. I mean. If anybody wants to distinguish himself this season and and has some some drive behind him and uh, you know he's he's had so many things happen to him uh, along the way whether it's injuries or situations that kept him off the field I would imagine this is a uh, this is going to be quite a release for him and I, I'm expecting big things out of that guy Chris you mentioned the uh, the historical perspective and I I know I've got to go to you guys for that because as you remind me frequently Chris I am. I think that you believe I am 12 years old and I've not aged in the last 12. seven years. So I've, I've kind of plateaued here. Um, <laughs> you know, historically in my lifetime, this is kind of a, an, an opener like any other. I mean, Florida's has played some, some of the kickoff classics, the Michigan game comes to mind, Miami, but to, to host a team like Utah, um, someone that I think most fans are completely unfamiliar with, except knowing that they've become a power in the Pac-12. And this is something really, really unique. So what I would ask you, how unique is this historically? If you are the type that uh, likes to put down a little coin on a game, then you are aware of betting lines. Um, and if you were to look at the history of betting lines, um, you probably could only go back to 1978 to look at you know, a particular game, what was the line going in. So just using that reference point, since 1978, Florida has never opened at the Swamp as the betting underdog, and they will this Saturday. Is that unique? Yeah, I think that's very unique. Um, These two teams haven't played each other from about the same time period. Scott, you know, because you were 40 in that time frame, I think. Um, (laughs) That's right. I think it was 79 when uh, a diminutive Utah quarterback came in here and ran – the Gators into the ground only to come up empty. The Gators won that only other meeting, which was what, 45 years ago. So that's the perspective of the new guy, Chris. Uh, So you may add to the depth of the uniqueness of this matchup from there, please. It's always been about directional schools that have been completely overmatched. I mean, that's what you think about when you think of Steve Spurrier and Urban Meyer era. Um, I mean, you could you could name the case Eastern what this or Western that, and they've it's come like in. A it's like a map. You just fill in right. a direction a, next a, to a state. It's been a 550-yard total offense game, you know, scoring in the 40s, 50s, sometimes 60s. I think once in the 70s, um, and that's that's just that's just what it's been, and, and that's been okay for fans to whet fans' appetites. That's what makes this one 
so unique. I mean, Scott did a, a chart, uh, I believe, last week. Um, there's only been, what, 10 times, Scott, that, that they've, they've played a ranked opponent in a season opener. Uh, I think, I think the, I mean, obviously Michigan a couple years ago in the AdvoCare uh, classic, the, the, the game in Texas, but in terms of being here, uh, uh, a home game, but having said all this, this is get used to it because I, I did a, I did a little research and over the course between now and 2033, okay. The Gators are going to play at Utah, at Miami, at NC state, at Cal over the next five years. And after 1920, they're going to be at Arizona State, at Colorado, at UCF, at Texas, and at Notre Dame. So there are going to be some interesting games. Gator fans, just long-time ones and watchers, haven't been accustomed to this. This is Scott Strickland, uh, uh, his philosophy on on going out of the region and playing sexy national-type games. And uh, the Gators will open at Utah next season. No one wants to talk about that right now, uh, but uh, this is this is this this is what fans want. And for years, fans uh, uh, complained about. Uh, here's another one of these openers. Well, no one's going to play right now. If anything, they're saying, "Why are we playing the team so hard this time?" That's what Gator fans do, right? Right. But it's also uh, yeah. this is this is what I think is important. As much as we, um, you know, when you're when you're inside this bubble, you get so caught up on this being like a life or death thing. At the end of the day, this is entertainment, right? And and I can say, at least from my perspective, the prospect of watching Florida Utah is significantly more exciting than Florida playing Duquesne, which is who FSU played this past weekend. I just I know that the goal is to win, but it's also to provide entertainment. I just, I don't think those games are entertaining. So even if it doesn't go well and Florida doesn't win, it'll likely be a lot more interesting than the alternative and will probably captivate people and, and hold their attention more. Well, it certainly caused a lot more cursing around Gainesville if they don't win. <laughs> but, you know, and I mean, dr- that's just... And drinking. And drinking. <laughs> but, you know, bottom line is, guys, I'm like you guys. I mean, I, I enjoy watching the, the big teams rank. The, I mean, I watched Nebraska... Northwestern last week just because it was college football being back. So, yeah, there's going to be a ton of viewership on the on this game, uh, what, Saturday night. There'll be a lot of people uh, listen to Sean on the radio. There'll be a lot of people read about it the next day. It's a big game, and this is what – this is the direction that we're all we're, – it's going. I mean, this is going to be more norm than not norm like Chris was talking about. And I think it's good for the sport, and, hey, it's where we are. So, if you don't like it, you might. I have to change sports. <laughs> well, allow me to pile on to all of the get off my lawn crowd. Um, <laughs> Chris mentioned all these scheduled openers for the next uh, seven to eight years. Um, I'm confident we'll be in Salt Lake City this time next year. But beyond that, if we're looking at conference realignment and major seismic shifts in college football, Chris's schedule may not hold that he just read off, but the caliber of, of opponent will because the only thing left that Florida will be involved in is one of two, maybe three super conferences that only play each other. So we're, we're going to go to nine SEC conference games. And before it's all said and done, every game is going to be against what we would now consider what's left of the power five. So may as well get used to it now. I love it. Um, I think that if, if Florida and their fans want to be regarded again as a national brand, be a national brand. Play Utah. Play a top 10 team. And by the way, if you go where you want to go under Billy Napier, you're going to be the team that nobody wants to schedule in their opener. You're going to be the top 10 team again 
and the conversation flips in that regard. So, Sean, you mentioned uh, the, the significance of Florida being an underdog, uh, according to the people in Vegas. I think what's interesting about this and, and what shows you college football and how it differs from everything else, if this game is in Salt Lake City, I mean, Florida may be a two-touchdown underdog, but it's at the Swamp. And that's the X factor that I think everybody knows, and Utah is aware of it too, whether you make it about the weather, about the noise, etc., maybe a combination of everything. This is a game that, you know, if Florida's going to win this game, the crowd and, and the atmosphere is probably going to have a lot to do with it. I don't think there's any doubt. Um, I'm, I'm a little surprised the line is as close as it is. Yeah. Uh, I think a last check, two and a half. It could have moved here in the last couple of days. but There's two other top 10 matchups this weekend, and both of those are 17-point spreads. This is a matchup against an unranked team, and it's two and a half for three points. That kind of shows you right there. Well, it shows you, it shows you the strength that the SEC holds with those, those bookmakers. It talks to the, the home field advantage here for Florida. Uh, you know, look, Florida has to go play at altitude next year. It, it'll flip in that sense. But I do think, and no disrespect to Utah here, being the Pac-12 champ ain't what it used to be. And so I think that when you look at the body of work last year, Chris mentioned hammered Oregon twice, probably beats Ohio State if Cam Rising doesn't get hurt you know, in that game. Uh, don't get me wrong. Utah is a really good team that returns 17 starters. But I, the, you're not playing the Big Ten defending champ. You're, you're playing the Pac-12 defending champ. And that's what I think tightens this up a little bit. Um, this is going to be one of those Saturday nights that some freak thing happens, like an LSU-Florida game, that decides this game. I think if you're into letting it rip on Saturday night, probably don't want to listen or watch. This is going to be knock the other guy's nose in the dirt. Chris already alluded to it on the Florida side with wanting to run the football. Utah wants to do the same thing at 60% of their plays. This is going to be some freakish special teams punt block muffed punt reception, major flip of the field type deal that I think defines the outcome of meeting number one here between Utah and Florida. That's just my opinion. So let me jump in there real quick. That, that would be a, if, if, if it worked in Florida's favor that way, whether it was a special teams play, when's the last time we saw one of those by someone in a Florida uniform, or how about just a turnover that mattered by the Florida defense? This is a team that last year was 120th in turnover margin in the country last year. So uh, uh, that matches being 119th in most penalties and being the most penalized team in the country last year. So those are things to go back to what we started talking about at the beginning. Billy Napier came here to fix those things. I mean, you fix you, you, you penalties by stressing discipline. That's been a, an, em an emphasis from him, uh, from, from Napier and his staff since he got here. Now it's up to this defense to start creating opportunities for the offense. And that's something Florida defenses used to do all the time. Florida special teams used to flip fields all the time with big plays and what have you. Um, and it used to happen all the time in the swamp. So to, to, to Sean's point, if, if that were to happen, that would remind me of, say, a couple years ago when Auburn was here, a couple years ago when LSU was here and Florida won these big games. Remember the, the, uh, the Tennessee game and the Ole Miss game. And it's funny that the Swamp used to be like that all the time. Now I've just kind of narrowed uh, references to just a few games here and there where the Swamp was lit over the last 10 years. Um, this should be one of those nights uh, this weekend. And obviously the Gators have to do their part to 
to make it the, the the kind of venue that you know we're all used to seeing in its, in its heyday. Being in the swamp also means we're going to get a honorary Mr. Two Bits. And it's always good, Chris, when you're starting off a new era, to be able to tie it back to successful ones in the past. Uh, hard to do much better than what the Gators did under Steve Spurrier. And one of the chief architects of those dominating years is going to be wearing the tie on Saturday night. Yeah, that would be Redell Anthony, who uh, not only was one of the greatest wide receivers in Florida history, he's one of the most entertaining, uh, an electrifying player when he was here, record-setting uh, 1996 national championship season, caught 18 touchdowns, which set the uh, SEC record at the time, and that record that stood for 23 years until I think it was broken by Jamar Chase at LSU a couple years ago. Um, you know, I talked to him. He's now he's now down in Tampa. He was first-round pick of the Buccaneers in 1998, came out a year earlier. Remember, he played – as a true freshman on 94, 95, 96, won the SEC title all three of those years. Uh, it's funny because I, I talked to him and I reminded him about, uh, you know, he was a guy who, and he caught the, I don't remember the 1996 game. I don't think you were born yet. Um, they played <laughs> Tennessee. They played Tennessee in a big game, fourth and 11. Spurrier, first drive of the game in a rainstorm. Spurrier just leaves him on the field from the 35-yard line. Danny Werfel bombed to Reedell Anthony catch 35 yard touchdown pass on fourth and 11 started the route, but Reedell caught it, ran up and, and jump into the stands like a Lambeau leap at Knoxville. They didn't like that in Knoxville. They were, you know, two years earlier, they didn't like it in, in Atlanta when he caught a touchdown pass as a freshman against undefeated Alabama and uh, did a, sh did a shotgun blast, uh, ripped his helmet off, helmet off and did a fake shotgun blast in the end zone. Um, uh, it, it's funny. So I asked him, what are you going to do for your little two bits routine? He goes, well, I guess I got to check the rules and regulations because Coach Spurrier told me I was the only one to ever end up in the don't do this uh, NCA video they put out every <laughs> year. He goes, I was in it three years in a row. So uh, uh, I imagine he'll have some kind of entertaining kind of um, uh, routine uh, for everybody before the game. And uh, I like the fact that uh, there's a there's a movement among the students and stuff to get uh, to the to the ball yard early. I think that kind of started maybe a little bit like late in last season. Maybe Mullen tried to do it last year and get him there. Napier has picked up on that. Let's get everyone in the stands and let uh, Redell do his thing. He even said he goes, I, I can't wait to see the swamp alive again because you know it hasn't been like that for a while. Especially whether you're talking about product or you're talking about COVID. Had a couple good games the last few years. Um, I think we've said this already in the last few minutes. This should be pretty, uh, pretty special night Saturday night, environment-wise. So we've clearly set the stage. There's a lot to look for this weekend, uh, and we'll see how it plays out. But we do need to transition to our PAT. It's Sean's first PAT. I wanted to make it a good one for him. Uh, Serena Williams is competing at the moment in the U.S. Open. Now, depending on when you hear this, she may or may not still be competing in the U.S. Open. Uh, but by all accounts, this is going to be the last stop in her incredible career. And we talk a lot on this show about Mount Rushmore's. We've done it for a variety of sports. For you guys, where does Serena Williams rank all-time among female athletes? Is she on the Mount Rushmore? And if so, who joins her up there? Well, Serena is certainly on the Mount Rushmore. And, you know, we get into this conversation, you know, LeBron versus MJ, all those things. Careful here about eras and sports because here's where I'll differentiate Serena and say, Chrissy Everett or Nadia Komen, Martina, Martina, Martina. Navratilova, Monica Seles, 
Brandy Chastain, you know, any of the superstars from the World Cup winners with USA Soccer. All those things are are in place. Serena fits right along, if not maybe a notch above them on the playing surface. I think for Serena Williams, the difference here is that I think she's the first female superstar to make the supernova jump to where she not only is, you know, the best at what she does in her era, but she's also, you know, a, a pop culture icon at this point, an influencer uh, of marketing, uh, all those things, and and a mover of, of people and especially young girls too. So in that sense, I place her in that group and the separator is that in this area of globalization and social media, she's been the first to transcend more so than any of the other all-time greats. Yeah, I mean, I agree totally that she's on the Mount Rushmore. She's definitely the biggest female athlete of this generation. And when you start looking at historically, you know, we all kind of identify strong with, you know, when we were younger, those people, they resonated with you the most. Like I remember, you know, the Martina Navratilova-Chris Everett rivalry. And Martina Navratilova, I mean, she also had a social consciousness that stretched beyond the court and, you know, Billie Jean King the same way. Uh, track and fields produced so many great, you know, Jackie Joyner, Kersey, Florence Griffith Joyner. The one woman, the one female athlete I remember that really stretched my imagination the most when I was younger, Cheryl Miller. You know, a lot of people I don't know if they think about her as much as they used to. But, I mean, she she was more famous – or she was famous before her brother. Uh, that's how good she was. But uh, Serena, I, I think what a lot of what Sean said, she lives in a time where her influence has been stretched beyond what was even capable for people like Martina Navratilova uh, and people in past generations. And let's face it, guys, she was kind of groomed for this by her father. I mean, there's an HBO movie out right now that I watched recently on – Richard Williams and, uh, you know, what his life was. It was really about creating these two tennis phenoms. And a lot of a lot of weekend mom and dads tried to do that. He actually pulled it off. So, and here we are talking about him 25 years later. So, yeah, she's earned her place in history. But she's also one of these people, seems like a lot of people really love her. A lot of people don't like her. I mean, she was, she never shot away from controversy. I mean, for for me, what makes Serena a slam dunk for when you're talking about the great? It's it's just longevity and greatness over time. I mean, I mean, she's what 41, 42 years old, and has been great for a quarter century, and you know, stocked up all these uh, uh, stocked up all these grand grand slams and what have you. And to Sean's point, um, become a a, a a a pop culture icon along the way, whether it's was was fashion or or uh, what you know, you know, what, you know, any kind of guest appearances she would do, celebrity kind of things. Um, you know, in terms of the greatest ever, sure, let's let's mention her. But let's, you know, I can go back. And this is this is before my time. Everything's before your time, Adam. But uh, uh, do it, Chris. Uh, say say, Babe Zaharis. Babe Zaharis. She died. She she died thirty years before I was born. Probably. I knew Chris was gonna. I was just waiting. I was I like, mean, Chris is gonna give us won, Babe Zaharis. I know it. She won an Olympic gold medal and 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 a, a bunch of uh, pro, uh, ladies professional golf tournaments, and then. And, and then pitched against the, I think the Dodgers and the Red Sox in spring training and got like 
future Hall of Famers out. So uh, she's she's got to be like considered up you know up there in, in in a list of the greatest athletes ever. And you know who else is? Guess what? She's right across the street from Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. Katie Ledecky. I mean, yeah. when all said and done, in terms of uh, uh, and we have you know the Olympics. What are the next Olympics? Paris, right? Correct. Yep. Yes. Paris. When the Paris Olympics in twenty four roll around, guess what? She's going to be right in the middle of all that too. Um, we saw her in the World Championships wearing a, a, a you know a, a gator cap and doing gator chomps. Uh, that's tremendous. And I don't know how the people at Stanford feel felt <laughs> about that, but who you know, but who cares? But uh, 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 this is a conversation that you know that you have to put. There's only four spots you can put on a Mount Rushmore, but all these people that we've named are among uh, uh, the greatest ever in their sports, and certainly uh, icons in the, in women's athletics. And it's a pretty good uh, way to kick off um, our, our PAT given the whole 50 year anniversary of title nine and all that, which we celebrated last year, but we're still in the same 50 year uh, vortex. So good for you, Adam. Nice, nice subject. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First ever compliment. Here what just happened? Days. Chris just complimented <laughs> me. I feel like I'm, <laughs> what's I'm, going in, on? I'm in the upside down. I don't know what's John, happening. Don't get used to it. Don't get used to it. Don's added an element of civility, civility. Civility. Yes. <laughs> Chris doesn't want to be as mean, at least at the beginning, at least at the beginning. Um, well, none of you guys are female athletes, but you're the best at what you do. Uh, so we certainly encourage everybody to follow all the content that Chris and Scott have going on at FloridaGators.com. And of course, listen to Sean in his debut as the voice of the Gators uh, this coming weekend. It's against Utah. I don't know if you guys knew that. We may have mentioned it a few times. Um, but we look forward to talking about it next week and, and hope for an electric one in the swamp. Thank you guys very much. Thanks, Adam. While we don't yet know how this year's defense will perform, we know they'll carry a hefty amount of experience. Thanks to a combination of players taking their extra COVID year and others looking to boost their draft stock, veterans are dotting the depth chart everywhere you look. That includes Amari Bernie, the super senior who was recruited by Jim McElwain, played for Dan Mullen, and now finishes career suiting up for Billy Napier. Um, I grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. My dad and my mom was in my life. I got two brothers and two older sisters. I'm the youngest out the family. Um, and I'm the only one currently right now. Uh, well, I'm actually the first one in my family to graduate from college. So wow. that's a big accomplishment. Yeah. Um, and then my second oldest brother is right now stationed in Korea right now oh, wow. in the Army. I saw that you were the you already graduated last fall. So I guess congratulations on that. What does it mean to you? to be a graduate and also still have this opportunity to, to play college football? Uh, it means a lot to me. Um, Coach Napernell told me that uh, if I wanted to come back, I could. So great praise to him for that. Um, he trusted in me and I trusted him. So, I mean, it's a great opportunity for me to go out my last season. Well, it's, it's funny too, because, you know, a lot of guys, they graduate and then there's a coaching change and they're like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to move on. I don't, I don't want to learn a whole new system. I don't want to learn a whole new operation. You chose to stay. So what, what was it that Coach Napier said to you uh, that made that the, the right decision for you? Um, it's not really what he said to me. It's um, how my dad raised me. Um, me and my dad sat down. We talked about it. Um, I feel like I can't jump ship um, without understanding the coach again to know the coach. So I feel like if I just trust him in the spring and see where it's going, then you feel me? And then I basically gave him uh, – put the ball in his hands with my career, and I was like, this what I um, this what I want to do. So after I stayed in the spring, it was just like um, – I mean, I just put my tr- all trust in him, and we was good from there. Yeah. 
What have the biggest differences been? I know you guys get asked these questions a lot whenever there's a big change, but in terms of the way that spring played out, the way that fall camp went, what have you seen that that showed you we're going the right direction here? I want to be a part of this. Um, just practice in general. Um, how hard practice became. Uh, I mean, even spring practice, fall practice. Um, what's crazy part is that in season practice is harder and longer than fall camp practice. Hmm. So that is that's that's really a big change, and I'm seeing. All the guys buy into it. No complaining, no grunting, no none of that. So I feel like we're in the right direction right now. It's funny. You get to a point where you are where I'm sure you become a, a real mentor for a lot of the younger guys. When you came into the program, what do you remember about the players that, that really took you under their wing and, and helped you learn the ropes? Uh, it was a whole bunch of people. Um, Chauncey was mainly one of them when I first got in here. Um he had a little thing about him where they say he kind of talked trash a little bit, but while he was mentoring me, I really didn't hear none of that. Um, just him coaching me up, um, telling me what position I should be in, like where I should line up and things like that. Um, it really helped me with the younger guys that's coming in. Um, they see me and Ventrell as like a older brother to them, mm-hmm. like a mentor to them. So I mean, just the younger guys actually buying in to what we're trying to coach them is a very good feeling. And what what does that responsibility include? Like, is it, is it more off the field stuff? Is it helping them understand aspects of being a college athlete, the expectations? Where do you feel like your experience and your wisdom is most helpful to them? Um, on the field a little bit, but mainly off the field. Just teaching them how to become a college athlete, how to go to sleep. Um, even if yo like frats are going out to parties and girls trying to tell you to go to parties and. Jump. <laughs> like that um just you know having the control to stand and get some sleep because you know we got to be up early in the morning um not missing breakfast uh not missing lunch um just learning how to study film on the college level and things like that mm. you yeah, and, and looking at uh the reasons you also could come back i'm sure having the the new facility it didn't exactly hurt right so i mean people have gotten to see this online and clips and social media tell us about this facility what's it like to be in this new building and how does it changing the experience for the, the players? Uh, so funny story. Um, when I was getting recruited by the old staff in like 2018, they've been talking about this building for about four years now. Um, they told me <laughs> it was going to be done my freshman year when I got here. <laughs> so uh, just to have a new building, um, Coach Napier, what's crazy is I actually got a parking spot in the front of the building. So it's like a zero, like a 30 second walk into the building. Um, just having the building, the new lockers, uh, we got anti-gravity lockers so they can go all the way back. We got Normatex and Sada lockers so you ain't got to be in the training room and hog up all the Normatex. We got a cold tub, hot tub, sauna, cryo tank. We got a whole bunch of stuff. Um, It's just very great, and we're grateful for it. And we use it a lot. I'm going to say everything in this building we use. So whoever, um, all the boosters and all that that put in the money to this building, um, we're thankful for it. Thank you. And, and do you do you think it's going to have a big impact on recruiting? When you think about yourself when you were going through the process, if you had seen that, how big of a deal would that be to you to see that kind of investment in a program? Oh, it's a big deal. I feel like we finally caught up to all the other colleges that Ben had their um, athletic building. Um, and I feel like even we still use the old building for game days, but just having this new building and all the new things, and I feel like the recruits are going to be, it's going to be an eye opener for the recruits. Hmm. You know, as you guys get ready for this opener, uh, a lot of times an opener is it's a school you know you're going to you know beat up pretty badly. It's not going to be that competitive. Um, this may be the toughest opening game in school history hosting a top 10 team in Utah. W- what's the mentality like for an opener when it's, when it's this big of a game as opposed to when you know you've got a few weeks before you get into that first big game of the year? 
Uh, I feel like we uh since I've been we've been treating all the games the same, but um, it's a little exhilarating. I feel like our um juices are flowing right now, so I feel like um we treat every opening the same, but just having a number seventeen come to the swamp, and we sold out. Uh, I think like a month ago, so it's going to be very exciting for us. I know this is the start of the year. You've gotten into practice and everything, but I'm I'm hoping you had a pretty good summer. What was the most exciting thing that you did over the summer before you came back and, and got to work? Uh, I must say I really didn't even do nothing in the summer. Nothing in the <laughs> if summer. It mainly, if it if it mainly football, I was supposed to get to go to the um. Mm-hmm. I think it's the lake. Um, I was supposed to go to the lake, but I kind of chickened out. They told me it was alligators in the lake, so. <laughs> I ain't gonna go swimming in there. But only gators get out of the swamp. You should have been fine in there, right? They they would know. They would know to leave you alone. No, they make get get the humans get out of line. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you didn't do anything this summer, but when you do have some time away from football, what do you like to do? What what's your what's your thing when you've got some some free time? Uh, sure. I like to watch movies. Um, mainly. Um, I mean, the guys know I play video games. I play Call of Duty, um, Madden, Two K. That's the type of things I like to do away from football when I'm trying to clear my mind. Best movie you saw this summer? Uh, this summer, I'm going to have to say Top Gun, Maverick. Fair. How many times did you see it? I've seen it twice already. Okay, me too. You see it in IMAX? Did you go, did you go big or just like regular screen? Uh, I went IMAX and D-Box. D-box. Oh, you did D-Box too? Oh, man, those are the ones yeah. that move around. Well, you had, yeah. you had a better <laughs> experience than I did. But see, that, that was the answer to the most exciting thing you did this summer. That would have been, I, mean, <laughs> I think that qualifies personally. Yeah. Um, all right, well, final thing before I let you go. Uh, this weekend, the Swamp, you mentioned it, night game, top 10 team coming in. What's the energy going to be like, and what's it going to mean to start this new era for the program in, in such a high-profile way? Uh, Shout-out to the fans. Um, Like I said, this game sold out, so I know it's going to be electrifying. And we're on defense, so when we're on defense, the, the stadium getting rocking. And I be, I'm trying to tell the young guys right now, when we're on defense, you're not going to be able to hear nothing on that field. So we got to come up with some, you know, different hand signals and stuff to communicate on the field. But um, we very excited for the game. We're trying to hold our urges right now until Saturday so, you know, we don't get worn out. But um, just this week coming up, a lot of guys locked in. It's no more jokey-jokey the game here now. So it's time to rock out. Awesome. Well, Mari, thank you so much for the time. Good luck this, uh, this week and, of course, the, the rest of your final year. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.